This is what happened. Late Friday evening, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man and a secret disciple, appears before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate and requests the body of the Lord Jesus. And Pilate, after assuring himself that Jesus had in fact died uh, from the prescribed crucifixion, gives the body to Joseph, who was accompanied by none other than Nicodemus, another noble, notable character who visited Jesus by night and was famously told that he needed to be born again. These men take the body of our Lord, having hastily wrapped him up in a linen shroud uh, with a mixture of spices, place him in Joseph's own tomb that happened to be conveniently located uh, near uh, in a, a small garden uh, near the place of the crucifixion. Two men, the two men roll the heavy stone closure into place and make their departure. No time for ceremony. The Jewish Sabbath is approaching. But of a sudden, soldiers arrive. Pilate had other visitors that evening. Some of the chief priests and Pharisees also appeared to make their demand that the tomb be secured and, and guarded, lest, as they put it, quote, his disciples go and steal their way the body and tell the people he's risen from the dead and the last fraud would be worse than the first. That's what they told Pilate. So, the order is given, the seal is fixed on the tomb, and the guard settles in for the night. Very early on Sunday morning, the Lord Jesus bodily rises from the grave, once dead, now as alive as ever, and in a remarkable series of events that follows, the soldiers flee, mighty angels come and go, the risen Lord Jesus begins to minister to his people, appearing over a period of 40 days on one occasion to more than 500 people in the flesh, and finally dramatically ascends to heaven where he now reigns, at the right hand of the Father. Now, the first one to see the risen Lord was Mary Magdalene. Uh, she was not alone, but John's Gospel, um, in John's Gospel, she's focused upon focuses upon her alone. Um, Mary Magdalene appears to have been a remarkable and godly woman. We're told that she had been miraculously delivered from, uh, what was it, 12 evil spirits and subsequently had joined Jesus' band of followers ministering to our Lord and the disciples together with some other women who in point of fact actually bankrupt, or rather bankrolled um, the ministry out of their own means, these women did. Uh, this Mary <coughs> was at the crucifixion when most of the disciples had fled. And she was first at the tomb, bringing additional spices uh, with the intention of opening the tomb and completing the burial ritual uh, which had been so hastily performed by Joseph and Nicodemus. It suddenly occurs to her, upon approaching the garden, that she had no way to pry open the heavy grave closure, but... She need not have worried herself because when she arrives, it's already open and empty. The soldiers have fled. 
um, the briefest glance confirms her greatest fear. The body is gone. And Mary is overcome with grief. Uh, and, and she stumbles off into the darkness to tell the disciples, they've taken our Lord from the tomb and we do not know where they laid him. She returns with Peter and John who satisfy themselves of the truth of her story and leave her, leave her weeping there at the empty tomb. But brothers and sisters, that was no time for weeping. Please pick up your Bibles and read with me. <clears throat> from the Apostle John's account of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. John 20, 1 to 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken our Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. After stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, on which, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. But Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had, and that he had said these things to her. The first thing that 
I want you to notice this evening is that the um, resurrection shows us the powerful bondage of unbelief in this text. When Mary uh, Magdalene saw the empty tomb, she could draw but one simple conclusion. Somebody had taken the body of the Lord. Perhaps thieves had stolen it. Maybe the Romans had removed it. Uh, who knows? Maybe it was the part of the evil machinations of the, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But what did it matter anyway? This was the last horrible blow and that long chain of horrible, inexcusable or inexplicable events that had ripped apart her life and faith. The terrible crowd, the, the howling crowd screaming for his death, the, the gruesome crucifixion. How could Jesus ever come to such an end? Hated and cursed and deserted and betrayed even by his own disciples and crucified with murderers and thieves. And all of this accompanied by an earthquake and and an eerie supernatural darkness that seemed to her to speak of nothing uh, more uh, than simply divine anger and, and judgment. And now, the last terrible blow, even his body had been dragged off God knows where. The stabbing grief, the misunderstanding, the weakness of her faith erased any thought of resurrection. The only thing that was left of her beloved Lord and Savior was now gone like everything else. She was not even able to go and see and dress his broken body. Stooping down, she looks inside to find two magnificent angels there in the tomb, but she dismisses them out of hand. She's so broken, so focused on her grief. What did she care about angels? That was the measure of her grief. Or maybe through the darkness and the tears, she didn't even identify them as angels or wonder who they were. Why are you weeping, they asked. And she could only repeat, well, they've taken the body of my Lord. Now, they don't know where they laid him. Even when Christ, the risen Christ, appears before her, she mistakes him for the gardener. Maybe the gardener knows something about this. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where he is and I'll come and and take him away. Her, her grief would not even allow her to recognize the Lord Jesus herself, the very one she sought, but alive and standing before her, her very eyes. What about, what about Peter and John? Well, they're two. They're confused, and they're uncertain. On getting Mary's report, they rush off to, uh, to see for themselves the tomb. The, the angels... Uh, we're not there then or not seen by them, but they do see the, the grave cloth and Peter pushes past John and for a closer look and tells us in verse 8 that John saw and believed. But it's not altogether certain what he believed. He, he might have simply believed Mary's report that someone had carried off the body of Jesus. Or, or perhaps he did believe that Christ somehow had risen but disappeared now forever, leaving the disciples to sort it all out for themselves. And they finally leave Mary at the empty tomb, uncontrollably weeping, turning away in silence. They walk back to their own separate homes. Verse 10. They were not 
rejoicing at all. Their hearts were also heavy and broken with sorrow and confusion. Now the question before us this evening, how could this happen? How could all of these people miss the resurrection? Jesus had spoken to them and and described it to the disciples repeatedly. John 9.22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised for life. Look again at Luke 18, 31-34. In fact, the record records numerous occasions when Jesus very clearly and directly spoke to his disciples concerning his death and resurrection. But there it was, the third day, the empty tomb, the folded grave cloth, the angel, and no one can quite believe it. Brethren, there are, there are nights, as OPC Pastor Zach Keel put it, when our sufferings grow long and believing God's promise is not very easy. Suicides, car accidents, overdoses, strokes, cancer diagnoses can darken our hearts to every hopeful word. Evil and tragedies, um, COVID weariness can cloud uh, not just our days, but our, our months and our years. The, the fog of depression sometimes just refuses uh, to let um, uh, the morning dawn at all. Sometimes um, evil spirits are so horrendous they seem to, to violently strangle to death and murder every hope. This was the shadow that covered the disciples early that Sabbath morning. The bondage of unbelief, of unbelief in the face of adversity can be very deceitful and very strong. And if that's the way it is with Christians... Uh, if even to some degree the apostles Peter and Paul and Mary Magdalene could stumble in doubts and unbelief, what is it like for unbelievers? It's absolutely wretched. There's nothing but dark thoughts and, 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 and you know, all at deaths and, and all the bravado and the silly stories and sentiments uh, that uh, we hear at funerals or gravesites. Uh, the Bible is very clear, and life proves it every day, um, that unconverted men and women are blinded by sin and hopelessness. John, the Apostle John, describes it this way. He's speaking here of Jesus as the light. He says, the light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light and will not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And that's so true. Um, the Apostle Paul describes it with these words. He says, the God of this age has blinded uh, the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, why does the Bible say this? Why does, why does Jesus speak like that? Because even without tragedy in our lives, even, without, uh, even in the very best of times, 
outside of a supernatural intervention of God's saving grace, our hearts are darkened to the Lord. We are, in fact, dead to our sins. Dead to God. Dead to spiritual truth and spiritual reality. Dead to the truth of the Scriptures and the glory of the resurrection. We are spiritually dead. Dead. Our bodies are alive, but our souls are dead. And that's terrible. You know what? The world is filled with zombies. Yes. With zombies who don't even know what's really wrong in their lives and why things seem so broken in the world. They instinctively understand that things are broken, that things aren't right, but they don't understand why. They don't get it. And they have no idea what they're missing. Look, it it simply isn't enough to be spiritually alive. If you're sitting here this evening, and I don't suppose anyone is, but maybe there is, and, and um, physical life is all that you've got. It's just not enough. It's enough for your kitty cat and your cute puppy dog, but it's not enough for you because you were made in the image and likeness of God and you have an eternal soul. It's not enough for you to get to heaven and not enough even to get you through this life. Physical life does not make a whole man. He's spiritually dead in sin. But that's the natural condition of us all. Dead in our sins. It explains a lot. What's happened to us? Well, I'll tell you what's happened. All of us have deliberately turned away against God. God is the loving creator and ruler of the world. But we reject in our hearts... We reject Him and we reject His rule over our lives. We do not want someone telling us what to believe and what to do. And so we turn away from God and we try to run our own lives without Him. What a disaster. It's not a good place to be. It angers God. It spoils our conscience. It consigns us to a life of bondage and confusion and sorrow in this life and judgment in the life to come, relieved only by material comforts such as we might have and fleeting moments with family and friends, which relationships we frequently succeed in spoiling uh, with our selfish pride and foolishness in the same manner in which we've spoiled our relationship with God. But the resurrection shows us more. The resurrection and the beauty of this text before us is that it not only shows us the power of sin and unbelief, it also shows us the power of the saving love of the Lord Jesus Christ. That may sound strange to you. How can it be that the resurrection could help anyone in sin and sorrow? The resurrection seems so foreign to us, even to the disciples, even to Mary, who found it hard to Understand How does that translate into day-to-day life? It's an absolute offense to modern rationalism, the resurrection. It's an affront to scientism. The most kindly, well-intentioned modern mind simply condescends to the idea of resurrection 
and names it as perhaps some sort of noumenal or spiritual truth. Not real truth, not physical fact truth, but something out here that some weak people believe. Well, the Bible, historic Christianity, utterly has always utterly rejected that sort of psychobabble. The resurrection is clearly presented to us as historic truth. Now, this, um, this text uh, this morning is filled, this evening is filled with historical detail, which just invites verification. Um, there is, uh, in, uh, we read about uh, all of these witnesses to the resurrection, hundreds of them, who saw and touched Jesus. And there's no record, no scrap of paper or tradition anywhere uh, that one of those hundreds of people ever recanted denying what they saw. In fact, people died rather than denied what they saw and believed. And they still do. I believe that our Lord very deliberately appeared first to Mary um, to honor her devotion to him, to make her the first evangelist and with the very purpose of establishing the factual nature of the resurrection. For the resurrection, if it was nothing more than a concocted story thrown together by the Christian community, then certainly they could have done better than start with Mary, a more competent witness than Mary Magdalene, a former demoniac, remember? It was, if this was all just a trick perpetrated by the early Christians, why in the world would they have chosen Mary, a woman whose testimony in that benighted day and age would not even be allowable in court? Why not some man? Why not some well-respected religious figure, someone uh, beyond scorn whose testimony would have had to been seriously received? Well, you see, Jesus' great purpose wasn't about proving anything to anyone or making a name for himself. His purpose was and is to glorify himself and to save lost sinners living in the bondage of unbelief. His great purpose was to glorify the Father by saving his precious people from the bonds of sorrow and, and misery and unbelief. Look what he does. Look what happens in our text Jesus um, quietly appears to Mary and calls her by name, Maria. And he speaks to her in probably in native Aramaic, the name which she had heard him say many times and a voice she'd heard him many times. And instantly the scales of unbelief fall from her eyes and she knows she's standing before Jesus in the flesh, not some ghost, but her resurrected Lord who is now without question also her beloved Savior. Brothers and sisters, the, the Bible is not a book of numbers or high-flying philosophy, philosophy that can only be understood by graduate degree people. Our Lord is not a God who simply ticks off names in a book. Rather, it's an account of people lost and found, 
The resurrected Lord is the victorious Savior who finds us, who goes out and finds us and saves us and brings us and calls us by name. Jesus knows this woman, Mary, and loves her. And He comes to her and He shows Himself to her in the midst of her sorrow and despair. And He calls her by name, Mariam. And Jesus knows this woman. Jesus is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd hears, uh, the sheep hear the voice of the good shepherd and he calls his sheep by name and he leads them out and he goes before them and they follow him because they know his voice. Mariam, Rabboni. In the same manner, he calls us out of darkness and despair and ruin. He speaks into our little boring and sometimes desperate lives. Who knows us, he does, from beginning to end, and came to seek and save his lost people. But he comes in resurrection power. He comes in resurrection accomplishment with resurrection gifts that he purchased for us there at the cross. Among Jesus' last words on the cross were, It is finished. Christ came as the Savior to take the guilt of our sinful unbelief, our proud rejection of Him dying in our place. Christ offers us His perfect record in place of our moral failure. All of that was accomplished. All of that was finished, completed on the cross. And the resurrection is the proof of the Father's pleasure and the Father's acceptance of that good work in our place. There's nothing more that I can do because Jesus did it all. The resurrection is the victorious proof and the seal of the completed work of the Savior. The resurrection is the keystone that holds the arch of the gospel and the Christian faith in place. And this resurrection ministry to Mary Magdalene, meeting her, revealing himself to her in sorrow and unbelief, is a glorious paradigm of his powerful saving love today. Why are you sad? Why are you overcome by your sin? The empty tomb is no place for weeping, no place for doubt or proud, prideful unbelief. Have you met the resurrected Lord? Do you know anything of His forgiveness and His love and His power? Have you any assurance of the long nights of this life that will give away to the eternal day of heaven? If you'll meet Jesus this evening again, if you will ask Him to save you and to hear Him calling your name, you will hear Him calling your name. Ask Him. Pray to Him. Resurrected Lord, forgive my sin of pride and unbelief and do for me what You did for Mary and for millions of others. Fill me with faith and love and trust in You. Well, everything will be different. Regardless of how bright or dark or long the day is, and you will rejoice with the ages in the resurrected Lord. Lord our God, we bless you for this account of the resurrection. We thank you for Christ our Savior. We thank you that He came. And we thank you that that resurrection power is alive and at work 
in the lives of his people today, calling, searching, seeking out. We pray for its grace and power, even amongst ourselves and amongst those around us. We long to see your churches full, that all your chosen race may come together to rejoice with you in the death of your Son, our Savior, and his resurrection. Amen.